So in any case, we're obviously, we've been here, we, we're kind of going through the book of Matthew. We um, are doing the things that happened before the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, this long kind of sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, and we're looking at everything that happens before that. So Matthew chapter 4 and before that. And so what we've been doing, though, is going backwards. We started in 4, and we're kind of working our way toward the front, and um, so the things that we talked about so far have really been the start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus starts the ministry, and he calls people to follow him, and these people leave everything, and they follow Jesus. And then we talked about the fact that Jesus comes as the light entering darkness, that he comes as someone who's able to stand firm in the midst of temptation, that Jesus comes, and he's the one that can take away our sin and can give us righteousness. And so we talked about the start of Jesus' ministry, and then last week, if you were here, Josh preached... And he talked about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist came and he's baptizing people into this new and better way. And starting next week, we're going to really begin to dive into Jesus' birth, the events that surround the birth, and the things that are said about Jesus um, as he's being born and as, just after he's being born. But today, before we get to that, we're going to talk about this period of time before he starts his ministry and after the birth and the surrounding stories of the birth. And so it kind of encompasses 30 years, but there's really only about two texts in the Bible that really dive into this part of Jesus' life. And so we're going to talk real briefly about one of them. It's found in Luke chapter 2. Um, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a teenager. He's 12 years old, and his parents go to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus goes with them, and then they leave to go home, and Jesus just doesn't leave with them. They have this big caravan of people that leave, and Jesus just stays and hangs out in Jerusalem, and he's missing for three days. And his parents are frantically looking for him and can't find him, and they finally get to the temple, and they find Jesus at the temple, sitting with the teachers of the law, understanding what they're saying, and also teaching them. And his parents are kind of blown away by, wow, this this kid is something special. And so that's one of the stories. The story that we're going to really spend most of our time today is in Matthew chapter 2. In fact, it's Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, and you can grab your Bibles and flip open if you'd like to. But let me tell you a little bit about, about this section of Scripture, a little bit about what happened pr just prior to this. And some of this, like I said, we're going to be talking about Jesus' birth and, and all that goes around that. But to make sure we understand our text today, we'll, we'll kind of do a quick overview of some of that. So, Obviously, Mary and Joseph find out that Mary is pregnant, which is kind of a problem because they haven't done anything to make that possible. She's a virgin, and she, they find out she's pregnant, and they're both visited by angels, and the angels say, hey, this baby that is going to be born is something special. So they're like, okay, it's kind of crazy, right? Like, you're pregnant, nothing to do, nothing done to make that happen, but She's pregnant, and then they find out that there's a census that has been ordered, and the census means that they're going to have to travel to Bethlehem and to be counted, right? And so they're, they're on their way to Bethlehem. Now, from Nazareth to Bethlehem is 90 miles. Now, they didn't have cars, so 90-mile journey either by foot or maybe by donkey. That would take about four to five days of just traveling. That sounds terrible. I mean, I think that some of the cars that we've had hurt your back. Can you imagine walking or riding on a donkey for 90 miles for four to five days? Well, the thing is, though, is Mary's pregnant, very pregnant. So now, um, some of you women who have been pregnant, imagine walking or riding on a donkey for 90 miles. I'm assuming that this four to five day journey took a lot longer. I'm guessing eight days. So I'm going to use eight days for my thought of how long this journey might have taken. Therefore, eight days they're traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, here's the thing is they're going during winter, so it's rainy season. The temperature is usually 
in the 40 to 50s in the day and in like 20s to 30s at night. So I, I really, I want us to dive in and picture this. You're traveling 90 miles by foot or by donkey. It's cold. It's rainy. I would rather it be 20 and a foot of snow than 30-something and rainy. It's just, I feel like that rain just chills you to the bone. And that's what they're doing. They're traveling in that. Um, and it's a very hilly area. It's up and down. Lots of threats from different animals. You got lions, you got bears, you got wild boar, but there was also this place where people would often be robbed. Like even in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's talked about that this is an area where that's kind of known for. So they're traveling this dangerous journey for eight days. They arrive into Bethlehem and Mary goes into labor. We know the story. There's no room for the inn. So Jesus is born. He's placed in a manger. They're visited by shepherds by wise men who all say the same thing, that this baby, there's something special about this baby. Then we go on and we hear that Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. And then if you know much about the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 12 tells that when the baby, baby boy, is 40 days old, you present the baby and you present the mom for purification at the temple. So they've been in Bethlehem for like 40 day. They took eight days to get there, and then now they've been in Bethlehem for about 40 days, and now they go to Jerusalem to the temple. Well, that's a good 10-mile journey, half-day travel with a newborn. And so in the past little bit, they've traveled by foot 100 miles. They've been away from home for 48 days. And they go into the temple, they'll meet Simeon and Anna, who again will say that this baby is beyond special. But before we dive into our text, I think it's important to really get the picture in our heads that they have been traveling by foot for 100 miles. They've been gone from home for 48 days. And I don't know if you're like me, but if I can get kind of inconvenienced and I can be bothered by things, and what I'm bothered by is no way near this. And so as we dive into our text, I think what's happening is they have baby Jesus, 48 days, probably not sleeping real well. Any parents of kids close to that? Remember the 48 day trying to sleep, not sleeping well, and they're about to go home. So I would assume that Mary is super excited about taking Jesus home. She's probably painted the bedroom. She's got the crib just right and got a really cool mountain picture above the bed and has all that stuff ready, right? She's super excited to get home to take Jesus to his room. And then this happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23. Now when they, this is the, um, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod 
died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father God, I um, pray for clarity. I pray um, that you would remove distractions, that you would um, fix our eyes upon you and your word, and that you would use your word to teach us in um, a powerful way. Again, we thank you so much for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, they've 48 days away from home, traveling 100 miles, about to go home, and Jesus is finally sound asleep, mom and dad finally getting some sleep, and Joseph does the most crazy thing that you could possibly do. He wakes up his wife. Like, this guy's got a death wish, right? He's waking up his wife, who is finally asleep. I think it shows that he clearly fears God over his wife, because if I woke up my wife when she was sound asleep, I might not be around much longer. But he wakes up Mary, and he says, Mary, Jesus is in danger. We need to rise and go, and we need to be gone until we hear otherwise. And I, I can only imagine Mary being woken up in the middle of the night, like, wait, 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 wait a second. You're telling me we need to go. Okay, where do we need to go? How long do we need to go there? It's like just questions, rapid-fire questions. So Mary, I'm sure, is like, well, where do we need to go? And he says, oh, God told us we're supposed to go to Egypt. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, what this means is Egypt is where they were slaves. They're, the Israelites were slaves in, in Egypt. And so, so really what's happening is God is saying, oh, remember that place where your people have been mistreated for thousands of years? I want you to go there. So I'm sure there had to have been this thing of, God, is that really what you're saying? We're supposed to go to Egypt. Okay, we'll go to Egypt. But again, Egypt is the place where they were mistreated, they were slaves, but then God rescued them out of that area, remember? And the, the Egyptians came running after them, and they, the Red Sea parted, and they get through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then the waters collapse and kills the entire Egyptian army. And God's like, oh, you know that place where in the pursuit of you guys, the, the whole army was killed? Basically, your guys' fault, you killed the entire Egyptian army? Yeah, go there. I don't know about you, but if God's like, hey, go to the place where your people have been slaves for generations. Go to that place where your, in essence, your army killed their entire army. Go there. That'd be great. It's the place where they were in slavery and God had rescued them, brought them to the promised land. And so when God is telling them, go to Egypt, he's saying, I want you to leave the promised land and I want you to go back to the place where your people were slaves. But I think that it goes further than that. He's saying, I want you to go there to this place where your people have been slaves, but I want you to go there, and oh, by the way, you'll know no one. I want you to go to this place where you know no one, you have no jobs, you have no house, you have no friends, you have no family, and go there until I tell you otherwise. I don't know about you, but 
so far, this does not sound like this type of thing that I would want to do if I'm in their shoes. And then, oh yeah, Egypt, 40 to 50 miles. You just walked 100 miles in the past just over a month, but now I want you to walk another 40 to 50 miles to go to Egypt, this place where you know no one, this place where your people have been horribly mistreated. Go there. And the thing is, it's the middle of the night when they get this message, and so they frantically pack up And they really didn't have enough time to get the car seat carrier, the pack and play. They couldn't grab the bassinet. No bouncy seat, no swing, no baby monitor. They couldn't get the bigger uh, backpack, diaper bag, so they couldn't get the extra diapers, no extra wipes, no extra pacifier, no hand sanitizer to make sure nobody touches the baby and gets the baby sick. And so this is a horrible, horrible thing that they have to do, right? And I know I'm joking about it, but if you really slow down and think about what God is telling them to do, there is no way they would have wanted to do this. And so I I say all this, and I want to ask you a question. It's the question that, that God, I feel like, has been impressing upon my heart this whole week, is have you ever been in a time where you know God is leading you to do something, and you simply do not want to do it? It may be something specific from his word, like you know you're supposed to love others, but it's like, did, did he really mean that one person at work? Like, I don't think that really counts. If God knew him, he wouldn't love him. Like, like, we can do that in our heads, but I think when we see this, we see that Joseph and Mary were called to do something that there's no way that they would have wanted to do, and I think it's very normal for us that we have situations that we are put in where we are called to do something specific, and we simply do not want to do it. I think that's where Mary and Joseph are in this. There's no way Egypt is the place they would have wanted to go. There's no way they would have wanted to go in the middle of the night. There's no way they would have wanted to walk. They would have wanted a nice car with heated seats to drive them there. There's no idea that they would want to stay until God said otherwise. Now, I can be really impatient. I can really struggle with things, but if I feel like if I know it's for a certain period of time, I can handle it. Like, I hate being uncomfortable, and I hate working out, but if I know I'm only going to work out for like a minute, I'm okay with it, you know? (laughs) Two minutes, eh. But if you don't know how long you're supposed to do something, it makes it even harder. And so Mary and Joseph are called to do something that they would not have wanted to do. Have you been there? Have there been times where you feel like you know that God is calling you, and it may be something like to stop wasting time on social media, but you just don't want to do that? Or maybe you feel like God's calling you to end a specific relationship or to leave that habit behind. Or maybe he's calling you to get out of your comfort zone and do this. And you just, you don't want to. He's calling you to stop entertaining those thoughts that are destructive in your life, but you just don't want to stop thinking about those things. Maybe God's saying it's time to get out of debt. It's time to work on the marriage and you just don't want to. I think that there's times where we may even hear from the Lord, like, it's time to serve. Stop living your life like you are seeking to be served, and it's time to serve, but we just don't want to do that. There may be times where we hear from the Lord that it's time for us to work wholeheartedly as if we're working for the Lord at our job, and we don't want to hear that. Time to be gentle with your spouse, gentle with your kids. It's time to get up earlier to spend time with me. It's time to go and ask forgiveness from that person that you have wronged, and we do not want to do it. I think that's where Mary and Joseph are. 
God is calling them to do something very specific, and they do not want to do it. How do you respond when you are in that boat? How do I respond when I'm in that boat? When, when God has called me to do something, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't want to do it. I know it's clear in his word that I'm supposed to do this, but I don't want to do it. Well, if we look at what Mary and Joseph do, it's verse 14. Joseph hears this message, and it says in verse 14, And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. God calls him to do something that he would not want to do, and what does he do? He immediately and fully obeys. God says, go to Egypt. He gets up, takes the baby, goes to Egypt. Then you can also follow along as he's coming home. He's, he doesn't come home until he's told. He's told, go to Israel. He comes, he's starting to go to Israel, but then he gets the message, wait a second, there's an audible. I don't want you to go there. I want you to go here instead. And so he, he, he obeys fully and immediately. And as I was reading it this week, I was thinking, man, like, it's just so crazy to me that, that they just immediately obey. It's not like they're trying to think about, like, well, let me, we need to take a little time to think about this. Let me take a little time and pray about it. Let me, let me read the Bible and hope that I can find two confirmation verses to prove that I should do this, and then I will do it. They don't do any of that. They feel that God is calling them to do something, and they get up and they obey. They obey immediately, and they obey fully. And the thing is, is to, to obey the Lord immediately and fully, it means that you have to trust God. You have to know that he knows what's best, that he has a plan, that he will provide, and that he cares. And as I was reading it this week, I started thinking, is that what my life looks like? Is my life marked by hearing from God and immediately and fully obeying? And if I'm honest, it, I don't think it does. And I'll ask you the same. Do you feel like your life is marked by being someone who immediately and fully obeys the Lord? And my guess is it's not. I think that so often many of us look more like Jonah. Remember Jonah? God says, hey, go do this. And he just, he goes the other way. Like, nope, not doing that. How many times are we guilty of knowing that God is calling us to do something, something that's very specific in his word, and yet we analyze it and overanalyze it? got to look at it from four angles and make a pros and cons list and we'll do all of this stuff come up with excuses as to why we can't or rationalize all the reasons that we shouldn't obey it maybe sometimes we live our lives where we're so busy that we couldn't hear god if we had to there's too many distractions going on to even hear from him let alone to immediately and fully obey or maybe there's times in your life, there's been times in my life where it's almost like you are purposefully avoiding listening to God because he might call you to do something that you don't want to do. And there's just this battle for control. Mary and Joseph are called to do something that they would not have wanted to do, and they immediately and fully obey. I'm not sure if that's what our lives always look like. And I was thinking about it this week that... Um, one of the things is, 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 you know, we can be like Jonah, we can be like all those things I just mentioned, but I think there's another component of it, it's the enemy. And you go all the way back to the very beginning, the enemy, the serpent, he comes, and what does he say to Mary? He says, did God really say? And I don't know if you're like me, but there's times where I know something very specific in God's word that I don't like, and he's called me to this very specific thing, and I don't like it, and so what I do, did God really say? 
I hear the enemy speaking into my ear. Did God really say? And what I'll do is rather than taking God's word and accepting it as truth, I will try to figure out a way that I can maneuver around it. I will, I will try to figure out, well, it, this is, you know, it's probably written into a totally different culture, and it was probably, and like, I'll come up with all of these reasons of why, because it, the enemy is speaking to me and saying, did God really say? And then I get in this position where I'm stuck analyzing and overanalyzing the word. And, and I think that what we can think is that the enemy simply wants us to just disobey God. But I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that the enemy's ultimate goal is always that we'll just flat out disobey God. I think sometimes the enemy is very content with creating just enough doubt that we don't obey right away. I think sometimes the enemy is totally content with leading us to a point to where we feel like if we just obey part of what God has called us to do, then we're doing okay. The enemy's like, you know what, maybe if I can just get them to compare to them to the other person. And so what they'll do is like, well, I'm not really obeying everything that God has commanded me to do, but I'm obeying more than Josh is, so I mean, I'm probably okay. I was saying, like, I really do obey more than Josh does, so it's totally, like, I was... But I think that the enemy sometimes is content with that stuff. I think that the enemy is content oftentimes with getting us to believe, well, as long as I go to church, I'm in a house church, I read my Bible, I don't kill, steal, cheat, lie, I'm, I'm good to go. But the fact of it is, is that God gives us his word, his specific word. And I don't think that he went to the effort that he went to to give us the word so that we would say, eh, I'm not doing that. I don't think that he goes to the effort of speaking to us so that we would say, yeah, I'm going to obey part of that because that part of it sounds pretty good, but the other part, eh, don't really want to do that. I don't think God gives us his words that will say, yeah, I'll obey when it's convenient or I'll obey during a better season of life. But if we're all honest, I think that there are times in our life where what we do is we think this. We think, you know what, I'll obey that when things are a little bit less busy, when things slow down after the holidays after I get all the gifts that I need to get. I'll obey the Lord when I'm retired and I have more time. I'll obey the Lord after we sleep train our child. Anybody there? I'll obey the Lord after this sports season is over, after March Madness. Wait, 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 no, that, that one's different. That one's different. I'll obey the Lord when I'm done with school or once I get married or once I have kids or, you know, I'm just in middle school. I'm just in high school and like, Really living for the Lord, that happens when you're old. And... But I think that God speaks to us clearly through his word. I think that he gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us so that we could be a people who would obey immediately and fully. And yet, if we're honest, I think that we would say that our life does not look like this because oftentimes when we are called to do something that we don't want to do, we don't obey immediately and fully in the same way that Mary and Joseph do here. Why is that? Why don't you obey? Why don't I obey quickly and immediately? There's a verse that I love and I hate. It says, if you love me, you will obey me. Why is it that you, why is it that I don't obey the Lord fully and immediately? It's because there's something other than him that we love more. There's something other than him that has become our king. 
There's something other than God that we will bow down to, that we will worship, that we will submit ourselves to, and that we will center our lives around. The reason why you and I don't obey, it's not because we don't want to, but it's because we don't love the Lord enough. That's a really, really, really hard truth. But Joseph and Mary hear from the Lord, and they get up, and they immediately obey. And as I was thinking about this week, that, that, that in my life, oftentimes I don't obey quickly. I don't obey immediately because there's things that I love more than God. And I was thinking about that, and it was really, I was diving deep into moments where I really knew that God was calling me to stop this or to start this, that I didn't do it, that I wasn't willing to do it. And I started thinking back on some of those, and I, what I think that I found is, in my life, the biggest sources of shame and guilt or regret have come from the moments where I knew God was calling me to do something, and I said no. I think that we all can get into that place where it exposes that we have a lack of trust in God, and it can expose that we don't have faith in Him, and it can expose that we have a hardened heart toward the Lord. And the reason why we're not immediately and fully obeying the Lord is because of, of those things, because of the hardened heart. Because we have put a false king in this place, this is king. For some of us, that false king can be being in control, can be being comfortable. My fault, I've, I've said it a million times, my false king is being comfortable. I want comfort over everything. For some, it's the approval of man. That, that is king. Being powerful, that is king. Being known by or known as something, that is the king. And so what happens is, is oftentimes the reason why we're not fully and, obey, fully and immediately obeying the Lord is because we have this false king. If you um, have ever been there, which I'm sure all of you have, I know I've been there, Maybe you're there right now, that you know that God has called you to something, he's led you to something, and you're just not willing. You haven't obeyed, or maybe you've only obeyed part. I think there's two important things to say in this moment, so kind of pause on the sermon. Two important things. If you are in a season where you are not immediately and fully obeying the Lord, number one, there is grace in your time of need. God's forgiveness is immediate and full, even when our obedience is not. You haven't obeyed. You've been delayed in obedience. And there's forgiveness. The second thing is this. Your greatest source of protection is always in immediate and full obedience to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that it will feel like the most protected time. Like God could say, hey, go to Africa where there's no air conditioning, and I will not feel very much like God is protecting me. Go to a place where people don't know the Lord, where they may kill you for speaking this to me. But ultimately, the greatest protection from God comes when we are in full and immediate obedience to him. But again, as you dive into this text, the thing that just jumped out at me all week is that there's no way that they would have wanted to obey what God has called them to do, and yet they fully and immediately obey. And this one's kind of weird. Their obedience saves Jesus. This is kind of mind-boggling to me. 
Jesus calls Mary and Joseph to do something in order to save Jesus' life. Because what happens is, while they're gone in Egypt, this king, fake king, King Herod, Herod was brought in by Rome. He wasn't God's king. He was Rome's king. He wasn't a real king. He was a false king. And the people of the the Jews hated him because of that. He's this false king. This false king comes in. And what's happening? The false king is so nervous about losing his kingdom. What does he do? He kills any child that is two years old and under out of fear that Jesus, who is this coming king, will take over. And so what he's trying to do, what Herod is trying to do is protect his own kingdom so much that he'll kill babies. It's, it's said in places that you can study that almost seems conflicted about who Herod is. Some make it sound like he was a good guy. Some make it sound like he was a bad guy. Some make it really sound like toward the end of his life he went nuts. He killed some of his family members who he thought were trying to conspire against him. And he kills these babies in hopes that this Jesus wouldn't become king. That he wanted to to save his own kingdom. He wants his kingdom and his way, his reign, his control. So much that he'll do, get rid of any threat that stands in in his way. And I think that all of us can get there. We can read this and we can look at Herod and be like, man, this dude was terrible. And, And he was. But if I'm honest, and I think if you're honest, there are often times where we look a lot more like Herod than we do Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are quickly, immediately, fully obeying the Lord, and Herod just wants to keep his kingdom, and he'll do anything and everything he can to keep his kingdom the way he wants it. As I was reading this week, I was like, I'm Herod. In this text, I am Herod. I do the very same thing. I view myself as king of my life, and I am threatened by anything that tries to get in the way of that. Even, even the Lord, even when, when God, the thought of God being king and me not being king is a very difficult thing for me. Again, I think if I'm honest, I think if you're honest, oftentimes we feel threatened by other kings. The reason is, is because we have a false king that is in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, and that false king fights against the real king. So what happens next is Mary and Joseph, they obey, and by obeying, Jesus is unable to be killed by Herod. I was thinking about this week that I'm really glad that it was Mary and Joseph that were called to do this, because I don't know if I would have. I'm sure I would have left the area to try to protect Jesus, but I don't know if I would have gone to Egypt. I don't know if I would have been willing to get as uncomfortable as what they would have to get for as long as they would have to get to do this. But Mary and Joseph obey, and it saves Jesus. But it does something else. It allows Jesus to fulfill seemingly contradicting prophecies. If you were to study the Old Testament, you would find that there are hundreds of prophecies about this coming king, about this Messiah. I'm going to talk just about a couple of them. This coming king, this Messiah, this real king who's supposed to come, Herod's a false king, the real king who's going to come, he is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, he's supposed to come out of Egypt, he's supposed to be a Nazarene, he's supposed to be a light to Naphtali and Zebulon, and even though he comes, Ramah will not be able to be comforted. And so all of these different locations are attached to this Messiah, to this coming king. 
And, and as people would read the Old Testament and they would study this, they would think, how in the world can the coming king be born in Bethlehem but be an Egyptian? How can the coming king be an Egyptian and yet be a Nazarene? It doesn't make any sense. And what is so cool about God is there were all of these prophecies that seemed like they couldn't line up. They were like these signposts so that we would know that this was the king. All these signposts, it's like downhill skiing, there's flags. And then when Jesus comes, he comes around and he is born in Bethlehem. And it's a miracle that he's born in Bethlehem. It's a miracle he's born because he's born of a virgin. We didn't even throw that one in there. He's born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And it's like he swoops by and passes that flag. And then God calls him, Mary and Joseph, to obey and to go to Egypt. And he does. And now he comes out of Egypt. And he goes to Nazareth. And now he's a Nazarene. Like, it's just, it's crazy to me of how intricate all of these prophecies are and how seemingly impossible it is to fulfill all of these because so many of them seem like they contradict. And so when Mary and Joseph hear from God to do something they don't want to do, they obey it immediately and fully, and it saves Jesus' life, and it also allows Jesus to fulfill seemingly contradicting prophecies. And I think really ultimately what we see in this text is that Matthew in this book, is uses this word fulfill a ton of times. And I think what he's trying to do is to make the case. I think what he's trying to say is this Jesus is the coming king. There's a false king that's standing, and he's not who's supposed to be king. The real king is Jesus. This is the coming king. This is the king that will come, and despite Herod seeking to destroy Jesus, he will live. And Jesus will be the king who can remove the false king, not only Herod, but he can also remove the false kings that we have put in our life. He comes to remove those, to knock those down. He comes to fulfill all righteousness. He comes to fulfill the law. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was like, man, it is so, like they wouldn't want him to obey, but they obey and it saves Jesus. And I started really thinking about this and it really just hit me. That I was reading this text in such a way, in a, almost like, man, I want to be like Mary and Joseph. I think I was reading it all wrong. Because I think even Mary and Joseph's willingness to obey fully and immediately points to something totally different. It points to this coming king. A king who will be called to obey. A, a king who will be called to leave the place that he's at to leave heaven and to come to earth. There's a coming king who will be called to go to a place not where his people were mistreated for generations, but he's called to go to a place where he will be mistreated. Jesus will come and he will be mistreated. He, this text is Mary and Joseph obeying is not the most, the coolest part about this. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus will come and he will live and he will die for what they deserve, what we deserve. In this text, you see that Mary and Joseph are called to obey something that they would not have wanted to do. Jesus himself is called to obey something that he would not have wanted to do. In fact, he'll say when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, take this cup from me. Jesus will be sweating with blood dripping out of his pores. He'll be unable to sleep. He will fall to the ground because he doesn't want to take on the punishment of sin. Mary and Joseph are called to obey something they would not have wanted to do. 
so is Jesus, the coming king. And Mary and Joseph obey fully and immediately. And when you look at that, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus obeys fully and immediately. He says, not by my cup, but by yours. And Jesus comes, this real king. And he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He'll be despised and rejected, smitten and afflicted, wounded and oppressed. He'll be stricken. Jesus was called to obey something. He would not have wanted to obey on one hand, and yet he fully and immediately obeys. He'll be beaten, abused, punished, ridiculed, and killed, not for his sins, but for ours. He'll come as a true king, seeking to destroy the false kings in our life. And if you remember, Mary and Joseph, they'll hear from the Lord to obey something that they won't want to obey, but they'll obey fully and immediately, and and thereby saving Jesus. Well, guess what? It is Jesus who will not want to do something in one hand, and yet he will do it fully and immediately. Why? So that his obedience will save us. If you get... Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. Now again, as you're flipping there, it's not that Jesus wouldn't have wanted to do it. It's the reason that he came, but from an earthly perspective, to go to the cross would not have been something he would have wanted to do. He will obey it immediately and fully that his obedience may save us. This is what Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 17, says. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man. So what that's saying is, because Adam sinned in the very, very beginning, all of us are born sinners after that. That's what that's saying. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It will be more clear in a minute. Therefore, as one trespass... Adams led to the condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, Jesus, led to the justification in life for all men. And then this, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is so cool about this text is not that Mary and Joseph heard something that they wouldn't want it to do and that they obeyed it and it saves Jesus. What is so cool is that this Jesus is the coming king who he will get a command to do something that he will not want to do and yet he will do it immediately and fully so that he can save us. So that he, his obedience can be credited to us so that by his stripes we can be healed so that he can be the Lamb of God that will take away our sins, so that he can be our scapegoat, so that he can be the Passover Lamb, so that he can take those false kings that we have elevated in our life and he can knock them all down. This text should not point us to Mary and Joseph's obedience, but it should point us to a better obedience, a richer obedience, a more full obedience, and it's the obedience of Christ. It's Christ's obedience Here's the deal. If we read this and we see Mary and Joseph's obedience, and we think, man, I just need to try harder to do that. It's not going to work. You can try harder and harder and harder to obey, and it just doesn't work because we need more than just someone to, some way for us to try harder. We need someone who can take those false kings and knock them down. And that person is Jesus Christ. 
We need the one who has the power to destroy the false kings in our life. If you are here today and you are struggling to obey the Lord immediately, to struggle to obey the Lord fully, I think we're all in that boat. What we need is Jesus, the one who can knock down the false kings. What we need is one whose obedience saves us. This is not based on our obedience. It's based on his obedience. Let's pray. Father God, I um, pray that my words were clear. I pray that the things that I said that were of you would echo in our minds and the things that were not would fade away. God, I confess to you that I, I say I love you and I do love you, but I am so quick to go my own way. I find it nearly impossible, if not impossible, to obey you when you call me to do something I do not want to do. And so, God, I pray in those moments for me and for other people here that we would see that there is forgiveness, that there is grace, that you are wrapping your loving arms around us. And, God, I pray that we would, we would truly understand that you have obeyed, that it is done, it is finished, and that we are yours, that we wouldn't live our lives in shame and guilt and condemnation, but that we would realize that because of what you have done, because of your obedience, we are made clean, we are made pure, we therefore have no condemnation. So God, I pray that we would not feel the weight of our sin in such a way that it leads to condemnation today, that because we are people who don't want to obey, but I pray that today, we would feel the weight of the fact that your obedience has saved us, has cleansed us. So much so that when, God, when you look upon us, you see an obedient child. And I pray that that will overwhelm us. I pray this in your awesome and precious name.